Good morning, everyone. It's good, so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, today, we hear the good news of forgiveness. That forgiveness has a lot of definitions in our world. Uh, we talk about it a lot. But forgiveness is ultimately, in the Christian story, it's liberation. It's a declaration of freedom. Forgiveness does not mean it's okay, no big deal. It doesn't mean, yeah, no problem, no big deal. It doesn't mean, well, your sin wasn't really an issue. You know, the offense that you caused wasn't really a big deal. And it doesn't mean, well, your apology was good enough. (laughs) No, forgiveness is something else. Robert Farrar Capon writes, when God pardons, he disposes of, he finishes with the whole of our dead life and raises us up with a new one. He does not so much deal with our derelictions as he does drop them down the black hole of Jesus' death. He forgets our sins in the darkness of the tomb. He remembers our iniquities no more in the oblivion of Jesus' expiration. He finds us, in short, in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. Our Old Testament reading today is central to the story of liberation. Israel has been set free from captivity in Egypt. We see the events of the Passover have occurred, that Israel has found themselves outside. They've, They've left Egypt and their slavery. But Pharaoh, who's made a decision to let them go, is not their final obstacle. (laughs) He's now changed his mind, and he's pursuing them with the best of his army. Now, freedom in our world, when we talk about freedom, freedom is always something about that changes its mind in our world. (laughs) It's never ultimate. It's always conditional. You're in my good graces today because I'm in a certain kind of mood. Or if you do this for me, then I will set you free. There's always a conditional nature to how we treat one another, to forgiveness, to liberation. But in our reading, Israel finds themselves then with Pharaoh's charging armies behind them and a giant sea in front of them. Now, remember in the Old Testament, sea represents evil and chaos. So anytime you see seas in the Old Testament, you should know, okay, this is telling us something about evil and about chaos. As recently as the 18th century, actually, explorers believed that if they traveled too far in the seas, they would find sea monsters and perhaps the underworld. So the sea always has represented for ancient peoples the great gulf, the great obstacle, the thing that holds humanity back. So the Red Sea story here is a true story, I believe, but it's also a typology. It points to something deep about humanity and about who God is. So we hear of Israel crying out in pain. They're in this stuck place. They're crying out, did you bring us here just to die in the desert? And God tells them, I will fight the battle. All you need to do is be still. This is what God does. God takes the initiative for liberation. It's not about what people do. It's not about the initiative that people take. God is the one who, by God's self, brings about liberation. 
Moses stretches out his arms. God gives a strong east wind, which blows all night long, and it creates a path through the sea. And it's amazing how God uses all of this. So he uses an angel. So there's this supernatural activity. There's human activity, Moses lifting his arms, and then non-human activity, wind. And it's all together. It's all happening. The effect is an act of creation. Dry land appears in the midst of chaos. Now, if you're a Bible reader, this may set off some alarm bells for you. The creation story in Genesis, if you remember that, when God calls dry land out of the sea, right? Dry land appears. This is pointing back to that. In fact, the world begins in Genesis with watery chaos, with seas, and God calls forth dry land. He calls forth order. God creates beauty and liberation and rescue and healing out of the mess, out of the chaos. This is who God is, the one who sets free and who brings about new creation. So you could say this is a story of liberation, of setting free, but it's also a story of God calling something that wasn't there into being, a new people, a liberated people. There's two groups that respond with this act of creation. The first one is the people of Israel, of course. They see the dry land that's been created in front of them, and they make the choice to step onto it. This is an act of faith. Think about being in that situation. You see, okay, this great obstacle that was in front of us, the sea is now parted. So I'm supposed to walk through that? That thing that was sea just a minute ago, <laughs> I'm supposed to walk through that and take that step? How am I going to know it's going to stay parted? They take action trusting that the God who brought them out of Egypt will not leave them to die under the Egyptian army or drown in the sea. But then after they take that step and they walk through, the Egyptian army sees this and goes, great, that looks like a good idea. We're going to follow what they did. Well, in this case, God's creative activity makes possibility for judgment as well as redemption by the same thing, the same means. Pharaoh and his army are working against God's purposes, against creation, and they place themselves in diametric opposition to what God has brought into being. All right, so once I had a string of migraines every day in a row. I know many of you have migraines as well and have suffered with it in different ways. My, my mom gets migraines for days at a time, and she can't get rid of them. She's trying all kinds of different medicine and stuff and, you know, uh, has spread out. And then I know some people that just have them that are absolutely debilitating. For me, it's usually I get a migraine, and then I take some Excedrin, and then I need darkness for like four hours, and then usually I'm better, so I can get over them fairly quickly. But one time, I remember I had a string of days in a row where I woke up with a migraine, and the way it works for me is I know it's there in the morning, and then as the day goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse until it's just unbearable. Now, when you have a migraine, the worst thing possible, at least what feels like the worst thing possible, is sunlight. Right? So when you see the sun, it feels terrible. Now, the sunlight, we'd all agree, is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And when your body is working correctly, you want the sunlight. Even when your body is not working correctly, the sunlight can be healing. We get vitamins from the sun. I don't remember which one right now, but some vitamin from the sun. D, great, thank you. <laughs> thank you to the 12-year-old in, <laughs> in the back. For, I didn't know that. 13 now, that's right, you had a birthday. Happy birthday. 
But when something is wrong in your body like that, this beautiful, amazing thing that God has created can feel like the worst pain ever. When our lives are entrenched in sin, when we move against God's creation and liberation for God's desire for the world, and then we come in the presence of God's beauty, it actually hurts. It's painful. And that's what we call judgment. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, paints this picture of heaven where people enter it and the grass is so hard it actually hurts your feet. Now, of course, we wouldn't say that the grass is inherently hurtful. No, but it's more real than you are. Another way to think about it, for some, God's new world will be experienced at least initially as something extremely unpleasant. Think about it. If your heart is bent towards hate, if you've given your life to the exclusion and oppression of other people, and then you're in the presence of true love, that hurts. It's painful. God's liberating purposes actually swallow up the Egyptian army. This thing that God has created for healing and liberation becomes a tool of judgment for those who work against it. This is why the life of Jesus caused such backlash. True love entered the world, and the world was judged by it. For many, it felt painful, even though Jesus brought salvation to the world. As the morning breaks in the story, the sea is calm and the shore is covered with um, the dead Egyptian soldiers. Chaos has been overcome. The Israelites have crossed safely to the other side. God has delivered his people. Israel is free. Now, when the people see the great work that God has done, it says they fear God and they believe in God's servant Moses. This word fear is really interesting. It's used to fear, be afraid of Pharaoh and his army and also fearing God. Fear has to do with this idea of who's in authority. It's a humble submission to acknowledging this is the one who runs the world. In chapter one, we saw the Israelite midwives feared the Lord. And they disobeyed Pharaoh's command because of it. They had more respect and honor for God than they did for the king of Egypt. These Israelite midwives are amazing women, strong women who stand up to Pharaoh, who go against his plan. And then here, after the people of Israel are liberated and they're set free and they cross the sea, they fear the Lord. So it takes the span of 19 chapters for the faith of the Israelites to catch up with the faith of these strong midwives in chapter one. Israel acknowledges that God's power is greater than Pharaoh's power. But this is important. The fear of the Lord for Israel is not rooted in the fact that God's just really powerful. There's not, it's not just raw power that God is just conquering everything. It's the fact that God heard their cry and liberated them. So they know that he is the true God because of that. Love is better than sheer force. This is what the whole story has been about. The God of Israel is greater than the Egyptian gods. God is greater than anything else we put our trust in. God is greater than whatever claims power in our world. God is greater than all the false messages which attempt to shape our lives. The Israelite story, the story of Israel, doesn't end after Passover. It can't end there. In fact, it's not the same story if Israel leaves Egypt 
but then dies in the Red Sea. We would say it was an inspiring story. You know, the people were set free. All these plagues happened. The people were set free. And then ultimately, God's natural world just, they just couldn't make through it. But the one true God is not just the one who sets free. He's the Lord of creation. He speaks and dry ground appears. In a similar way, the Christian story is not the same without resurrection. It would still be an inspiring story. Jesus led a lot of people into a new way of living. He died a martyr's death. He was an inspiration to the world, but ultimately the powers of the world got the best of him. But in the resurrection, we see that the triune God always has the final answer. No hedging. God's creating, liberating, and loving purposes always prevail. In baptism, the church has affirmed that we enter that story. We step into the reality that we serve the God who is creator and liberator and who loves the world. And that's the final thing about our lives and the final thing about our world. Our gospel reading is also about liberation. Peter asks how many times he's to forgive. And he says, should I forgive up to seven times? At the time of Jesus, there were these groups and they acknowledged that a lot of the people who would go and offer sacrifices for forgiveness, they would do so and they didn't really mean it. And people were doing things wrong and then they were offering sacrifices over and over again and they'd get suspicious and go, I don't know that they're really genuine in their repentance. So there were all these groups that would draw lines and say, you can only do that so many times. Like you can ask for forgiveness about four or five times and it's fine, but then beyond that, you can't really do that anymore. Some said if you were a repeat offender, you couldn't be forgiven at all. So what Peter is saying here is seen as pretty generous. He says, hey, should I forgive people seven times? Like, that's a lot of times. Jesus responds by saying that seven's not the number. The number is 70 times seven. Now, this is a way of saying that you need to forgive beyond your ability to count. If you're still counting how many times you forgive, you're not truly forgiving. You're just postponing your revenge. When we choose forgiveness, and we want to be clear here, the goal is not just forgive and forget as if nothing happened. Forgiveness, uh, you know, my parents are therapists and they talk about this a lot. This is a really important distinction. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust, okay? We can choose to forgive somebody and then still have to have boundaries as a result of the offense. That's a natural result of the offense. Likewise, forgiveness and justice are not opposite things. Justice is a necessary pursuit. It's important in our world. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is surrendering the need for vengeance, letting go of that need to get somebody back for what they've done. It's a declaration of liberation. Yes, when there's sin, when there's brokenness, when there's a break in trust, there are consequences to that thing. But I'm choosing when I forgive, I'm no longer enslaving you to that thing. Jesus tells his story of a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And we're told that this is a guy, this king, who keeps score. He's a bookkeeper, right? He keeps tight books. And one man owed him 10,000 talents. Another way to translate the 10,000 is countless. <laughs> There's just so many talents. Today's equivalent of this, or another way, is 10,000 bags of gold would be equal to at least $2.5 billion, okay? 
This amount represents over 10 times as much as would be collected by all of Herod's sons who were governors over all the different regions. So they would collect all the taxes and it would have been um, over 10 times as much as they would have collected, okay? So it's a lot, a lot. And it's trying to tell us that it's insurmountable. So the king orders that the man's wife and children be sold in order to pay the debt. The servant begs for mercy and says, I'll pay it back eventually. We see that this indebted man is also a bookkeeper. He's also one who keeps score. He's calculating, what promises can I make to the king that'll get me out of this situation? But the truth is, repayment is impossible. The indebted man probably knows this, but he's hoping that the king doesn't know it. So maybe if I can make enough promises, the king will be convinced I can pay it back eventually. Suddenly, without reason or warning, we're not told in this story why, we're not told what's going on in the king's mind, but suddenly the debt is canceled. The king alone knows the reasons the debt is canceled. The man didn't get out of this scrape he was in because the king expects him to pay it back later. No, he just canceled it. He just dropped the debt. He just forgets it ever existed. Then, once the forgiven man is let go, he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 silver coins. So this is the modern equivalent of just over $4,000. Okay, so think about the billions of dollars in the first case, and then over $4,000 here, and he demands that he pay it back. It's, in fact, the translation we read today said he chokes him, right? Even when the man begs him and asks for more time to pay it back, the servant refuses, and he has the man thrown in prison until he can repay the debt. What's the difference between the king and the servant here? The difference is the king was willing to die to his scorekeeping, his bookkeeping. The servant was not. The king was willing to stop keeping score, and that's forgiveness. When the master calls the servant back in, he's angry with him, and he hands him over to the jailers to be tortured. Now, we know that the servant would be unable to pay his debt, so we're left to assume, is he going to experience punishment forever? That's harsh. In fact, both of our stories today, our Old Testament story and our gospel story, both have to do with judgment that is really hard for us to talk about and really difficult to explain. In the first case, we have, why is the Egyptian army wiped out? In the second case, we have, why is this man who refuses to forgive, why is he being tortured forever? Why does Jesus say whoever refuses to forgive will themselves be refused forgiveness? Well, in order to answer this, we have to get into the mindset that forgiveness is not like a work that we perform in order to get forgiveness for ourselves. It sounds like that sometimes, but it's not like, hey, I did this forgiveness thing, so now you owe me forgiveness. That's not the way it works. No, there's a reason we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because forgiveness is like a direction in which we're pointed. Or you could say it's water that we swim in. Or you could say it's air that we breathe. It's not just an action that we do. It's a way that we're pointed. N.T. Wright says it this way, forgiveness is more like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, 
you won't be able to take in any more yourself and you will suffocate very quickly. The calling here is to be willing to open our lungs to both give and receive forgiveness. Are we willing to live in a world of forgiveness? Are we willing to open ourselves up to that? We might even say, using our Old Testament reading, are we willing to step onto the dry ground that God has created in forgiveness? This connects with what Jesus has said elsewhere in the chapter about children and the kingdom of God. It's often our lack of childishness which leads us to think we're too good to forgive. In Genesis 4, 23 and 24, there's this character named Lamech, and he's a descendant of Cain, and he's boasting about how he's going to bring vengeance on those who hurt him. He's kind of bragging about it. And then he says this, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech is crying out for justice and responding with vengeance. This could have been the creed of much of the world of Jesus's day. And it shows just how revolutionary it was that Jesus proclaimed continual forgiveness. What Jesus does is he flips Lamech's words upside down. So he doesn't just say, okay, forego revenge. Don't don't get back at somebody that hurts you. He says, seek to forgive as many times as Lamech sought to avenge himself. Keep going after forgiveness. This is what Jesus does on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It's not difficult to identify the power of sin in our world. We see it all over the place. And sin often leads to obvious things, leads to violence against one another, objectifying, betrayal, hatred, bigotry, loss of life. We often experience vengeance in our lives by, in more subtle ways sometimes, by attempting to socially isolate the one who's hurt us, talking behind their back, speaking to them in passive-aggressive ways, punishing them at work, sometimes by violence, or simply by just keeping score in our minds of all the things that they've done. But it also has, sin also has deep psychological effects. Leads us to shame, isolation, and fear. Justice, of course, is important. It's important to provide restitution, to make things right. Strict justice alone may put a bandage on a wound, which is important and necessary, but it doesn't actually have the power to heal. Forgiveness is an agent of healing. When we've been hurt, forgiveness is the one thing we can do to participate in that which actually brings about God's new world. It's an act of freedom, and it's not just an act of freedom for the one being forgiven, but for the forgiver too. We can forgive one another because in Christ, God has forgiven us. He has declared the ultimate act of liberation and new creation. Because of who God is, we no longer have to grasp for control. We can trust in the God who has initiated our rescue, has saved us from the enemy, and will put things right. This act of liberation, of true love, leads us to fear the Lord. But not fear in the sense that we're terrified of him, but that we give him our allegiance in a world that looks like so many other things run the show. I think in this life, 
we're often tempted when we become successful to believe that worldly success is our ultimate pursuit. The problem with that is if you know a lot of people who are worldly successful, as you keep getting more and more successful, you just want more of it. That kind of success is rarely consistent, and it will keep us thirsting. It's like drinking from a thermos that's full of sand. Then when we find ourselves relatively safe and secure in this life, the temptation becomes to hold on to that safety and security at all costs, to make that our pursuit. And then what happens is we then become internally focused, and we react against others, try to keep them out to protect our security at all costs. It's like a squirrel that hoards nuts and lashes out at someone who seems to threaten it. We often push away those who threaten the things we hold most dear. God's liberation says there's another way. We can let go because we've been set free. We have been forgiven, and that opens our lungs to exhale that freedom into the life of others. Early Christians saw this connection between the Red Sea story and the story of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ has crossed the great sea of death, and in baptism, we have done so with him. We have crossed that sea as well. So today, my prayer for you is that we hear the good news, first of all. You have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. You have been set free. Because of this reality, the world and your life is never the same again. Now, we have to acknowledge that we don't see this new world fully realized today. In this way, it's almost like we live between Passover and the crossing. It often feels like we're surrounded in our lives with evil chasing us from behind and in front of us. And we have to trust that God is with us. The same God who called dry land out of the sea, who called life out of death, is calling out new creation in our midst. May we know him. May we fear him. May we step out on dry ground. May all we do be in honor to the Lord as we share the table with all of our brothers and sisters. And may we be a people of extravagant forgiveness, letting go of our record keeping, knowing that we can trust God even with that. Amen.